Welcome to GEMCAST, the Geriatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, where we discuss important topics in the care of older patients in the emergency department. I'm your host, Christina Shenby. GEMCAST is produced with the Geriatric ED Collaborative. You can find more episodes on any podcasting app, and you can find the show notes on the resources page of gedcollaborative.com. Welcome back. It has been a little while. GEMCAST has taken a little break for COVID and while I was getting an MBA and a few other things going on in life, but I am so excited to be back with a fantastic first return episode. I'm also excited to announce that GEMCAST is now collaborating with the GED Collaborative or GEDC. GEDC is a group of leaders in geriatric emergency medicine who want to basically create collaborations and integrate care and share best practices, et cetera, et cetera, across the country or the world. You can find out more about GEDC at their website, gedcollaborative.com. It feels so good to be back and talking about some important issues. And for our first episode, back, we have two phenomenal speakers who are very passionate about the care of older patients. I can't wait. I am here with two phenomenal women physicians, Danya Kuja and Nicole Soria. Danya is in a physician in Baltimore, and Nicole is at the University of Cincinnati and has done her geriatric EM fellowship there. And these two phenomenal doctors just published an article called Genitourinary Emergencies in Older Adults. And so, of course, I had to have them on to talk about this article. Now, first of all, this is not necessarily the hot topic. This is not the Reboa. This is not the coding neonate. Why this topic? Thank you so much, Christina. So, you know, I think it's really fair to say, just as you just said, it's not something people wake up or show up at work thinking, GU emergencies, that sounds amazing. Did you say older adults? Tell me more. It may not be as adrenaline pumping as other topics, but I do think it's really important. And what I do think physicians and caregivers think about is how can I do better and how can we do better? This is an area where we can definitely do better. So we picked this topic to highlight pearls to make it easier to do better. Well, first of all, thank you, Christina, for having us. Um, And the reason I talked about this or that Nicole and I wanted to write about this and then now talk about it is that on my end, at least, it combines two of my pet peeves, which is the fact that we try to call everything a UTI in older adults. And the second one is that genital complaints, at least in my opinion, are not adequately addressed in older women. You're so right, Danya. When somebody comes in delirious and people say, oh, five white cells in the urine, we're done. I'm like, why don't we reel in that little anchor right there? Let's just reel it in (laughs) and take a broader look. (laughs) Well, let's start with the basics, the history and physical. What are some pearls you can share with us there in terms of how we should think about and assess the older patient? This is a great place to start. So when we get to our older adults, especially those who can't communicate well or those who are less mobile, Getting them undressed and exposed can be quite literally life-saving. It's interesting to me, in trauma, this is a known dogma, right? You have A, B, C, D, E. Any trauma that comes in, it's important to expose them. You have to see what else might be going on. And if you don't do so, that's really unacceptable. So when you have patients that aren't able to disclose a complete history, it can be really frustrating in the emergency department when you walk into a room and you find them fully clothed, under blankets, debilitated and unable to reposition themselves or assist you in repositioning them. 
It's easy to say, I'll come back when I have more help or forego it altogether. Anticipating this and going in with a staff member, such as a nurse, to assess the patient and gather history while doing so can make you much more efficient and less likely to forget. Recently, I actually had an, an older adult male patient. He came in via EMS for altered mental status with report concern for potential UTI. EMS told me family had called due to fever and lethargy. And unfortunately, but not atypically, the patient themselves couldn't really give me any history and the family wasn't available to talk to. In this case, the nurse and I exposed the patient and we noted signs of cellulitis and crepitus in the GU area. Obviously, this patient had much more going on than a UTI and it prompted antibiotics and immediate consults to surgical specialties. Since we know gangrene can spread at a rate of two to three centimeters per hour, it really highlights how immediate exposure is so critical. Wow, that's a great catch because it is so easy when a patient doesn't look in a lot of distress and they still have their clothes on or maybe they have a gown on. It's kind of awkward to say, hey, can I take a look and, you know, pull up their gown or pull down the blanket. It's kind of awkward, but that's what they're, we're there for. We're there to find the things that are unexpected, or we're there to find the things that the patient may be too shy to talk about, or the patient may not even know about. For example, folks who have a spinal cord injury, and they may not know that they have a huge stage four sacral dehub. So it's so important to completely undress completely examine, roll the patient. And it does take an extra couple minutes to find another staff member to help you undress them and roll them. But like you said, I've certainly found things either unexpected foreign bodies or huge sacral ulcers or all sorts of things that I would have missed if I hadn't exposed the patient. Definitely. You know, when exposure uncovers concerning exam findings and you're with another team member, it's also a lot easier to be on the same page with the people who are directly taking care of the patient. If I find something on my own and then I go find my staff and I'm like, hey, I'm worried about this versus we're all in there. We see it at the same time. It's me who's doing the ordering. You know, I order the medications. I call the consultants, but it's my staff who gets the medicine to the patient and in the patient. They're the ones who do the blood cultures. They're the ones who are really on the front lines. Other easy pearls on pertinent physical exam findings, which may be overlooked, are abdominal palpation to assess for a distended bladder or masses and offering a genital exam to any patient with irritated voiding symptoms. It can be awkward, I totally agree. And one thing I tell my patients, I say, you know, third grade and the hospital, totally cool to talk about poop. I wanna know what it looks like. I want you to look at it, it's important. <laughs> That's great, that's great. The other thing I say is I wanna make sure we don't miss anything. So, and they usually appreciate that you're being thorough. Nicole, those are some great pearls. Let's talk next about urinary incontinence. As emergency physicians, when we think incontinence in a young person, we think spinal cord pathology. That's your cauda equina. But in older patients, it's a little less clear. And maybe they've had incontinence or maybe this is new. So how do you go about thinking about incontinence? So absolutely, Christina, this can be confusing because 20% of community dwellers above the age of 65 and up to three quarters of older adults in long-term care facilities have some level of incontinence. So understanding and knowing their baseline is definitely important. And that's where thorough history comes in. Also understanding the type of incontinence is important as well. Urgency incontinence, which is more common in older adults, is you can't make it in time to the bathroom and you just have incontinence because you can't continue to hold it. Versus stress incontinence, where when you cough or you laugh, you have incontinence. Overflow is where you just have incontinence. It has nothing to do with your desire to go to the bathroom. And it's often mixed. There is a mnemonic 
that is about incontinence that is called diapers. Oh goodness. Who came up with that? (laughs) Okay. Well, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's because I've never heard of it before until I saw that. And it's an older paper that actually Nicole taught me about. And I thought that was pretty interesting. I was like, wait, it's called diapers. Diapers. I mean, come on. So what is, what are these letters stand for in the mnemonic? So D is for delirium, dementia, and diabetes for when you have so much hyperglycemia that you're just polyuric. The I is for infection or inflammation. So that's usually what we think of with our UTIs. A is atrophy. And that usually comes with like atrophic vaginitis, usually with older women. P is for pharmacology. And that is something that we definitely need to think about a lot more often, I think, which is looking at patients' medications. E is for excessive urine output for any reason. R is for restricted mobility. So when the patient cannot actually get to the bathroom in time, not because of a urine issue, but because of a, I can't get there issue. And then S is for stool impaction and for sacral nerve root pathology. That is great because we are so often just thinking, is it the spinal cord or is it just general run of the mill incontinence or maybe an infection? Maybe we get that far, but that is so many more things to think about. And also I like that it gives you a structured way to go through a checklist almost. Okay. Is it infection? No. Is it spinal cord? No. Is it delirium, dementia, diabetes? No. Is it atrophic vaginitis? Well, that one might be more of a a diagnosis of exclusion. Well, that's fantastic. Let's talk now about the opposite of incontinence. How about when folks come in with retention? Any pearls there? Oh yeah. One of my favorite pearls about retention is actually the post-void residual. And this is something I learned fairly recently. So clinically significant PVR volume is unclear. It's highly dependent on the clinical context and may range from 100 mils up to 500 mils. So to be very clear, there is no actual agreed upon number which definitively counts for retention. It's one of those please correlate clinically numbers, our favorite thing when we get from the radiologist. The second is rapid emptying of an enlarged bladder causes vagal response, which can result in hypotension and or hematuria. So studies have shown this is neither common nor clinically significant. Third, when you are able to identify the cause of a urinary retention in the ED, whether it's infection, constipation, or medication, it should be rectified, and we should try to do a spontaneous voiding trial. It is reasonable to attempt spontaneous voiding while in the emergency department prior to discharge, and if we fail, then we discharge them with an indwelling catheter. For men, if you're placing an indwelling catheter and they have BPH, then it's also a good idea to start them on alpha blockers as this increases the success rate avoiding when the catheter is removed. Make sure you caution them on the side effect of hypotension and encourage them to take it at night. Ideally, they should have follow-up in three days as this has been shown to improve outcomes and reduce complications. In regards to retention, my very first question always, is it something we did? As in, did we start a new medicine? Did we change a dose, et cetera? As Dania said earlier, our pharmacology and medications can oftentimes be the sneaky culprit we miss if we don't remind ourselves to ask and look for it. That's really interesting that there's no specific number that we can hang our hat on in terms of retention. And I wonder too, if it may be something that's specific to that individual, maybe the number for them would be a hundred or 200, or it kind of depends on, on where they live in terms of their bladder emptying. So Nicole, you talked about retention and often we see this in men, either because of prostate enlargement, prostatic hypertrophy or medications, as you mentioned, what about in women? What are some specific considerations we should have with them? 
So an important cause of retention that we don't really think of in the emergency department is pelvic organ prolapse, which is a lot more common in women over the age of 70. And women may not volunteer this information unless you specifically ask about whether they feel like they're having some pelvic organ prolapse. And even sometimes on exam, it's not readily obvious. You do need to do a couple of maneuvers, ask them to valsalva and so on to be able to actually see that bulge. Now with patients who are symptomatic or patients who are having retention, those are the ones that are going to need a referral for like a pessary, estrogen, surgery, things like that. But sometimes we do see patients who come in with just the complaint of pelvic organ prolapse and they notice the bulge, but they don't have any retention and it's not actually uncomfortable. Those patients don't actually need a specific treatment. And unfortunately, sometimes we are their only venue to ask that question of, hey, do I need to do something about that? Hmm. Well, we've talked so far about the importance of exposing the patient, doing a good physical exam, and then incontinence and retention. One of the other GU emergencies that we see is trauma. How does this show up in older adults? You know, fortunately, in older adults, isolated external trauma to the GU area is pretty uncommon. Maybe not surprisingly, most traumatic injuries occur in males related to a fall, either against furniture, bathroom fixtures, or climbing equipment like a step stool. The physical exam can help distinguish between something simple like a testicular contusion versus a true urologic emergency like a rupture or a penetrating injury through the darkest fascia. I think this goes back to the pearl we talked about earlier with physical exam. You have to take a look. For this too, treatment doesn't vary by age and injuries which are limited to the external genitalia are managed on an outpatient basis. One thing we definitely recommend doing is avoiding trial prior to discharge. Those are great pearls. And again, comes back to the physical exam. You have to look just like in traumas. When we roll the patient, we look in the gluteal folds. We look in the axilla for any sorts of injuries. We need to do that here also. What about UTIs? We mentioned at the beginning that these can be a huge point of either missing them or overdiagnosing them or attributing other things to them. How should we think about UTIs, Danya? All right. So for the next three hours, I'm going to sit here and rant about UTIs <laughs> in older adults. Perfect. So actually, I'm just going to talk about three very simple things. And I think those are, in my opinion, the three most important things that are related to UTIs in older adults. One is complicated UTIs. Two is asymptomatic bacteria. And three is UTIs and delirium. The first one is easy. If you're an older adult, then by definition, the UTI is more complex. That is especially in men. That means longer antibiotic courses, thinking of resistant bacteria, and possibly changing up your antibiotic choices. Now, nachofrantoin is okay in healthy older women if their creatinine clearance is above 30, despite what the BS criteria says. But that is going to be part of that three-hour conversation we're having later. Moving on to asymptomatic bacteria. That is basically when you have a positive urine culture, but no symptoms, which in our emergency department land is really positive bacteria on the micro with no symptoms. And it's much more common than we think. 20% of older adults in the community and 50% of those in long-term care facilities are going to have that asymptomatic bacteria, which means that their urine is going to look concerning when it's actually just the way they live. And that's so much higher with patients with indwelling catheters. And for some reason, 
people want to keep treating this. Although the IDSA has an entire guideline dedicated to asymptomatic bacteria that says, just, just don't, just don't treat it. Now, the reason this is a big deal and the reason I'm so passionate about this is because one, it leads to a lot of unnecessary antibiotics. So that's a lot of C. diff that we're gonna see in the ER later, but also, which is a massive pet peeve of mine, and I'm sure for everyone, is that when a patient has some other symptom like belly pain or delirium, and then we attribute these symptoms to bacteria when it's just their norm. And that is very worrisome because that's when we call it a UTI, call it a day and move on. When they're like dying from cholecystitis or pneumonia or ACS or something else. But you know what? We treated that urine. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree. What about you, Nicole? Have you had patients who've had complicated or occult UTIs? So I spend most of my time in the emergency department, but one day a week I spend time in a nursing home. And just this week, actually, I got a patient, the nurse came up to me and said, hey, can we start them on oxycodone BID? They went to the ED last night. They were diagnosed with a raging UTI, but she's still screaming every time we move her leg. And I was like, well, that's not, that doesn't sound right. So I go and I look into it. And this woman has a vascular necrosis of the hip. She fell a couple of months ago and it's getting worse. And I look at the urine and it's Danya's favorite, there were literally five white cells. You know, I said to the nurse, this woman does not have a raging UTI, please stop those antibiotics. And she's probably in pain because she's 97, she broke her hip two months ago and she has a vascular necrosis that we can see is getting worse. They did do an x-ray so I could tell that it was getting worse. So that was great. Um, but then it was a, a matter of talking to the family and saying, you know, she's not hospice, she is DNRCC, what do you wanna do for her care? because we're not, I'm gonna tell the nurses, stop checking for urine. She doesn't have a UTI, that's not the problem. Every time we move her leg, it's because her hip is hurting, it's not the urine. You actually remind me of a patient I had a while back where the sign out that I got was aging UTI, which is why they're febrile. And it was those, it was those same five whites, Christina. I think they just go <laughs> from patient to patient. They do. And, and then I walk in and I'm just like, uh, something looks a little off. So I turn on the light and turns out, um, the patient has parotitis, um, cause their face was swollen and that's why they're febrile. Oh, wow. Yeah. You have to look, sometimes you even have to examine the face. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> well, I know we've all had patients with those things that we thought were a UTI and, and we were wrong, or maybe it was a UTI and something else. You can certainly have more than one thing. And partly that's because the symptoms are so nonspecific. It could be pelvic pain. It could be fever. Like Danya said, it could be just, I feel a little funny down there. I totally agree with feel a little funny. That reminds me, actually, I had a patient recently who presented for fatigue and she told me she was worried that she still had a UTI. And I asked her more about it. And she said, well, my doctor saw me, they put me in antibiotics and now I'm on medicine because they think I have a yeast infection, but it still burns when I pee. And I said, okay, well, let's take a look. And I needed help. But when I looked, I found lesions consistent with herpes. I mean, talk about irritation. Antibiotics and yeast infection is not, I mean, that's not going to do it. Yeah, exactly. We have to look. Well, another thing we sometimes don't always think about in the GU area is cancer. And of course, you can get prostate cancer, testicular cancer, ovarian, vulvar, all, any sort of area is prone to cancer. 
How should we think about that or examine for that or what symptoms should we be looking for? So I think something that we always think about is, hey, if somebody has prostate cancer and back pain, that we need to look for meds. That's relatively obvious. However, a couple of pearls here are that one, we need to remember that we should image the entire spine, preferably an MRI with and without contrast if we can, because in more than a third of spinal meds, they're going to be in multiple levels, even if the patient has no neurodeficits. And then the other thing is that we need to think about cancer or undiagnosed cancer in the right patient. The patient is coming in with weight loss, low health literacy, no access to care, or they have not just went for their regular screenings and so on and coming in with back pain. These patients can have undiagnosed prostate CA and have those back masks that we're talking about. Great pearls. Well, I encourage all the listeners to go and read your article that you wrote in Emergency Medicine Clinics of North America 2021, hot off the press, but give us some review or your take-home pearls. Definitely physical exam. Remember, E is for exposure. Anticipate difficulty and find a buddy. When I think of find a buddy, I think back to college when I wouldn't walk home by myself. I mean, find a buddy. A male with BPH who is discharged with the Foley catheter should be started on alpha blockers and followed up in three days for best chance at improved outcomes and reduced complications. I would say those for me are my top pearls. As for me, with incontinence, I always think about baseline, ask about medicines, and think about more than just your spine. Think of the diapers, delirium, dementia, diabetes, I for infection, inflammation, A for atrophic vaginitis, P for pharmacology, E for excessive urine output, R for restricted mobility, and S for stool impaction and sacral nerve pathology. In older women, always ask about a vaginal bulge or pressure if you're considering pelvic organ prolapse. And for UTIs, don't assume all bacteria in a UA are a UTI. You can give nitrofurantoin and simple cystitis with a normal carotid clearance. And in back pain with prostate cancer, image the entire spine. Thank you both, Danya and Nicole, for bringing us those pearls and really educating me also on a topic that is so broad and so common and so easy to miss. So thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of GemCast. You can connect with me on Twitter with the handle at GemPodcast. You can also navigate over to gedcollaborative.com for more resources on the care of older patients.